welcome to Grounded and Soaring, our podcast that explores how we might raise healthy kids in a too often unhealthy world. I'm Sam Shapiro, head of school at Marin Montessori School, and I'm excited to kick off our second season of the podcast with a wide-ranging conversation with two parenting experts. Um, I'm really excited to introduce you first to Sherry Glukoff Wong, LCSW. Um, she and her partner, who I will introduce, Olaf uh, Jorgensen, recently wrote and published their book, Raising Kids, Your Essential Guide to Everyday Parenting. So Sherry is a family therapist, parent educator, and consultant who is known for offering practical, usable approaches and tools for raising kids. She served as the resident parenting coach for Apple, Jimboree, and Genentech, and has trained healthcare professionals at Stanford Medical Center and UCSF. Ms. Wong lectures at universities, including Stanford, UC Berkeley, and UC San Francisco, consults with faculty at Yale University Center for Emotional Intelligence, and she was a featured speaker at the Pediatrics in the Pandemic Age National Conference for Pediatricians, and her parenting advice has been showcased in the media, including the Wall Street Journal, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the Huffington Post, as well as on the televised national satellite media tour on best parenting practices that reached over 2 million parents across the country. Her co-author of the book is Olaf or Oli Jorgensen, who has just completed his 20th year as the head of school, serving at Almadine Country Day School in San Jose since 2008. Ole has supported parents at public and private schools in three states, as well as in Asia, Europe, and Central America. He works closely with parents on a daily basis and is attuned to the needs, anxieties, and concerns challenging them today, especially in Silicon Valley's fast-paced environment. Oli speaks and publishes widely in education, and his articles and books cover a range of subjects in education. His recent work concerns the impact excessive academic demands have on our student wellness. Oli's parenting expertise was included in the New York Times bestselling parenting book, How to Raise an Adult, by Julie Lithcott Hames. She also wrote the foreword to the book, Raising Kids. Welcome, Oli and Sherry. Oli, what was it about, or what is it about Sherry's message that you you thought was so important at this moment to, that it gets written down and shared more widely? I sometimes refer to this book as a toolkit, Sam, because I mean, there are people who, I know there are people who read this cover to cover, but one of the things that parents need now they're so busy. People, lives are just so, especially in a place like the Bay Area or Silicon Valley, but across the country, parenting life is so busy and we're, we're juggling so many different challenges um, that what parents need is uh, a resource where they can, uh, they're, they're encountering a challenge, a parenting challenge in real life, and they can open up a book and say, hmm, okay. And all of Sherry's work rests on the notion of, um, takeaways. You know, she just has things that you take and they work. Sherry, can you tell me about your, the formation of your understanding about parenting and, and, and where it came from? And, and is there specifically something about today's landscape for parents that is unique um, compared to other, other points in your career? You're asking the right person about today's landscape in relation to others, because I've been doing this for a number of decades. What is compelling to me is that parents often underestimate how completely influential they are. 
in their kids' development. And I don't just mean that they get fed in their health and their education, but I mean their values, their character, their self-image, their self-esteem, their social development, the way they hold other people, the way they hold themselves, how they interact, what matters. My hope has always been to help parents be intentional about it. Not that there's a right way to parent or a right value to have, but that you want to be deliberate about what you are sharing with your kids and not to give inadvertent messages that later are played out and you regret being the source of them. Well, okay. So why don't we, why don't we jump into the, to the topic and Oli, I know that you, you, you say you really, you, this is Sherry's book, but you're obviously a very experienced educator and work closely with parents. So I, I really do hope we can hear from you on your thoughts on this, but um, for those of us, you know, those of us parents seeking to raise healthy kids in today's pretty a daunting landscape, what are the three to five most important practices and or attitudes that you suggest we bring forth and, and help us understand why and how? I would say this very thing that we've been talking about, which we frame in the book as home is the training ground for the way the world works. Because parents often want home to be a refuge. It's the place where we do contour to your needs. It's the place where you kids are central. It's the place that you want to be cozy and loving and affectionate. But it is also the place where kids get their messages about how the world works. And so it becomes really important to be mindful of the messages that kids are getting at home from parents. The other part to that that really matters is related to um, resilience and being able to manage in life. You know, during the pandemic, you talk about this landscape of these times. During the pandemic, the kids that did the best managed the best with all of the adjustments, all of the disappointments, all of the pivoting uh, back and forth where you could get whip, whiplash. Mm -hmm. The kids who did the best were the kids who at home had learned in the small ways how to handle a disappointment, um, how to manage transitions, how to accept boundaries and limits. The things in everyday parenting, which is why we focus on that in the book, everyday parenting. It's not the big deal issues where the teachable moments are. It's in the every single little interaction that allows kids to develop muscle in the areas that they need to. So in the book, we talk about that what kids breathe in at home, they breathe out in the world. So I'm understanding that the home is the training ground. And on the one hand, we have an impulse to make it as, as sort of loving and cozy and soft as, as possible for ourselves, as much as for our kids and knowing it's a training ground. Are there, are there some, some lessons that you find parents most frequently avoid? Disappointment. Mm. A lot of parents have a hard time when their kids are disappointed. They certainly don't want to be the source of disappointment and 
when they're not the source, they rush often to mitigate. I shouldn't say they, I should say we. Yeah. We all we all do this. And mm-hmm. as a parent, I certainly did that. My my parents did that. And um I think we lose track. Oh, one of Oli's favorite lines um, is that disappointment is a feeling, not an event. When kids respond as if it's a big event, there's a big tantrum. There's a big dramatic response. Um, parents start to say, oh, my goodness, this is a big deal. Instead of remembering that actually it's a little deal. It's a feeling it will pass and your kid has a chance to develop their disappointment muscle. I'm so grateful you mentioned that because uh, that really rings true to me as, as critical. And, and I, I'm, I'll share, you know, briefly an anecdote from, from my own, cause I'm, I'm a, we in this uh, is when our, one of our, one of our kids, um, got into the college that he really, really wanted to get into, but it just didn't really make sense. Um, mostly for financial reasons, but also what he wanted to do and telling him no was a massive disappointment. And as he was expressing his disappointment, everything in me wanted to just say, okay, never mind. We'll, we'll, we'll make it work for you. Everything in me. And I just had to sit on my hands and I'm so glad we did because the when I kind of caught my breath, I realized like who amongst us gets through life without major disappointments? <laughs> you know, it it is it is woven into life. And so to try to create a uh, a utopia so disconnected from the reality of life, we're not actually serving our kids. It's more protecting our own sense of guilt and and struggle as we want our kids to always be happy. And I I think probably, Sam, the reason you were able to, as you put it, sit on your hands is that you were able to stand firm on your feet because you were on your spot from head to toe. Your instincts, your judgment, your heart knew what was the right thing to do for your kid and for your family. When we have that kind of clarity, it's just a lot easier. Um, And so... You know, when you drop your younger kid off at school who has separation issues in the fall and you know your kid's going to cry and you dread that, so you're tense and cajoling before you even get there, your kid imagines that you're as worried about them being separated from you as they are. Mm -hmm. If you have the clarity that I'm delivering you into good hands and I know you'll be okay, your kid learns to uh, take that in and move past that short discomfort. It's one of the it's one of the first things that that Sherry introduced us to when she visited, um, and I've heard her share it with audiences uh, repeatedly. And it's a it's a powerful construct. So the notion of being on your spot um, as a parent. Uh, Sherry talks about being on your spot from head to toe, and it's a place where uh, you are able to make decisions uh, and take action uh, for your child um, because you're you're uh, certain uh, that it's the right thing to do in your heart, in your head, 
Uh, your instincts tell you it's the right thing. Uh, and Sherry oftentimes um, will begin this, uh, and then we put in the book this this sort of um, metaphor that she sets up. You know, she she asks families in an audience, she asks parents, how many of you have trouble, you know, sometimes getting your kids to bed and hands shoot up in the air? And how many of you have trouble, you know, getting up 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 to go in the morning and hands shoot up in the air? How about mealtime, you know, manners, hands shoot up in the air? She'll do four or five of these. And then she'll say, how many have trouble getting your children to, you know, buckle their seatbelt? And very rarely do, does a single hand come up in an audience of a couple hundred people. And Sherry says, well, why is that? And people say, well, you know, it's 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 not negotiable. Well, why? Well, it's the law. It's, oh, does your three-year-old know, you know, <laughs> the legal code? Um, no, it's because you're on your spot. You know it's the right thing uh, to do. You, uh, you're clear on it. Uh, you have conviction. It's a loving thing. Um, you're with your child. You care about your child's safety. Uh, and your child senses that and just knows that you're on your spot about that. That's, you know, Sherry calls that, um, and you referred to it, Sam, as as a seatbelt. You know, if you have a seatbelt issue, uh, parents for whom getting out in the morning and getting to work uh, is a seatbelt, like they ha that has to happen, tend to have fewer challenges getting the kids out the door in the morning. So, so the thing about the head to toe part about your spot is it's an alignment, right? Your head says about a seatbelt, this is what the, the research shows is safe. Your heart and which connects you to your kid says, I, I want my kid to be safe. Your instinct is that all of this protection is the right thing to do. You're not being overprotective. You're just being safe. So your feet, you can stand firm and walk your talk. You can insist on it with your kid and they get that you mean it. So nagging is really when you're out of alignment. It's too big a deal to you somewhere in you to let it go. Either your head says, hey, this is important, but you don't have the heart to insist on it. Or your instinct says this matters, but you can't justify it. So somehow you, it's a big enough deal that you can't let it go, but not a clear enough deal to you that you're going to stand firm. And so what you do is you keep repeating yourself and say it over and over again. Uh, which is what we do. And I, when parents say, what, what can we do to eliminate nagging? I always say, either take it on or let it go, but don't hang out in the nag zone. So what I'll have parents do is make a list of the behaviors or the things that go on the patterns at home that you really don't like and make the list as long as you want. Now go back over the list and circle the things that you're ready to deal with now, that you will do what it takes. The other ones are going to all be not yet. Mm. You'll get to them, but you're not there yet. Then you end up with a handful of things that one by one you get on your spot about. Parents can't do that alone. This is where schools come in because there's some things parents just, it's just not on their radar to understand that their kids need to be more independent about something or that something's going to be asked of them in 
the school situation. In a classroom, like for example, kids at home, parents often defer to a kid's needs. You're playing Legos with your young kid or you're doing something with your teenager and you'll say, okay, we'll watch the, we'll go to the movie you wanna go to or you can have the good parts of the Legos. But in school where primarily they're interacting with peers, there's more reciprocity required. So when the teacher gives feedback that your child has a little trouble with the give and take, can you work on that at home? Then parents know, wow, I need to work on give and take with my kid at home. There's a lot of things that um, schools need to communicate to parents about, this is what we observe, this is what we'd like to see, can we partner to support your kid to develop that? So, Olia, um, how about you? What comes to your mind in terms of everything you're seeing, both as a parent and an educator? What parents do at home and in life outside of school with regard to building, um, supporting their children's self-esteem uh, um, uh, is maybe incomplete and and may not and may not support the the experience of children at school because. Uh, you know, we we know that um, a lot of us try to make sure that our our children feel uh, special and unique, and we and we as parents we um, you know we try to highlight those ways in which our kids are special and unique. Uh, and what Sherry often tells audiences is, is that uh, true self esteem in a child depends on knowing two things that you are unique and special and that you're just like everybody else. Self-esteem depends on, on both things. Kids, in order to feel good about themselves, they really do need to know both that they're special and unique and they're just like everybody else. And the art of parenting is knowing when to give which message. True self-esteem means having regard for self and other simultaneously. I used to tell parents, but for a mere exception, the world consists of others. Yeah, beautiful. So um, we have, so now the, the idea of you know, home is training ground, especially when kind of learning how to normalize disappointment. Um, really thinking about, we, we do want our kids to have a strong sense of self and self-esteem. And that requires a true awareness of, of my uniqueness as a child, as my as my parents' child, my uniqueness, my my brilliance, my my uh, the wonder of who of who I am as an individual, as well as the fact that I'm pretty much just like everybody else in my fundamental needs, and I'm 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 part of this human community and society. Um, I'm curious if that's you know if there are other other points that come to your minds around what would you most want parents to really consider? Maybe we'll go back to Sherry um, as they raise their kids in, in today's world? I'll tell you the topic that comes up the most with both parents and uh, schools, teachers in particular, is uh, limit setting. Mm. Both kids being able to handle limits and boundaries. Uh, of course, the disappointment issue comes into play here, but it's also about parents and teachers sometimes being able to set limits. Teachers tend to be a little better about it just out of sheer survival. There's so many kids, you can't not 
hold kids to boundaries and civility. But um, parents often have a hard time setting limits because they don't want to be unkind. Sometimes they don't want to be restrictive, um, which um, may give kids an inadvertent message that when you don't get to do your want to's, that have to's are somehow terrible things to have to do. And have to's often lead us to the best want to's there are for us to have. Also managing routines. Um, young kids love rules, rituals, routines. They love to be able to predict how it works, how it's gonna happen. As kids get older, they feel a little confined by that, but they like to know the policies or the operating principles. Like, hey, handle your homework your own way, but it's business before pleasure in our house. I have a, a bit of a pet peeve about threats um, because a lot of parents use them because it's hard to resist the leverage. If you don't do that, I'm taking the iPad away. If you don't come now, then there won't be any stories tonight. Um, if you're not home by this time, you don't get to use the car next weekend. There's a if then, if then kind of threat. The problem, the the part about that that makes it compelling is that it gives you some leverage. You feel some power, some control, and it's often effective. The sad thing is that there's a price you pay, which is that kids who are raised with a lot of threats for leverage end up either being someone who threatens to get leverage or somebody who's susceptible to threats. So I, a simple gimmick, this is one of Oli's favorite, is instead of if them, if you don't finish your homework, then you don't get to go to the party. It's when then, when your homework's done, we can leave for the party. It's not a power struggle between you and me. It's a way that it works. And it's also, it's, you know, works. it's also just, just teaching our kids about natural consequences. You're not, you're not in your core and you're in your being, you're not a bad person for not doing your homework. You're not a bad being for doing, not doing your homework. But the consequence of that is that you're not going to the party. That's just the way it works. Well, I tend to want to use the word the result or the way it worked out. As opposed to because that's more that's more um neutral sounding. Consequence tends to be a Bay Area word we use for punishment often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When they say consequence, they mean a, a punishment. And mm -hmm. Honestly, the question, if someone were to ask me, what's the question I've heard the most in my office over the years? It's when I make a suggestion about how to manage something. And the parent says, what should the consequence be if the kid hasn't done it? And I say, you know, you haven't even said anything to them yet. And you're already planning on failing. Mm. So that's not being on your spot. There's, there's no reason not to give a kid agency if you can. Yeah, yeah. And um, and if it comes from the kid in a way of 
I want to be seen here too. I want to be part of the equation. If it's coming from a power struggle place, then you need to step back and just get out of the power struggle. All families have things that are going well. In, in my family therapy practice, parents rarely come in to recount all the things that are going well. They come in to tell me what's not working. And I ask them what's working. You wouldn't be surprised how often someone says nothing. I, I feel so not effective about anything. So then I start asking, you mean your kids won't get dressed? Oh, no, they get dressed. You uh, mean you can't? Oh, no, they do that. So they weren't born doing those things. Somehow you're effective with those things. And so let's look at the difference between the areas where you're effective and the areas where you aren't and see if you can't borrow some of that conviction mm. and bring it over to the other areas. Parents give all kinds of messages. And most of the messages from parents uh, are, are intentional and, um, and effective, but that there's also this whole set of unintentional messages they send. You know, when a parent steps in uh, on what Cherry would call kind of a little deal uh, with a, a long email to a, to a teacher or a, a requesting a meeting or, and the child knows that the, that the parent is intervening on their behalf, the unintentional message that can send, Sherry will sometimes point out, is that the parent doesn't believe the child has the sturdiness mm -hmm. uh, advocate for, for themselves. A really important thing is to keep things right-sized. And often our responses, and honest to goodness, I raise kids too. I know that sometimes my reaction was so not right size, so outsized, because I was tired, because it was cumulative, because something about it triggered some anxiety in me, that I would have a bigger response than was warranted that would give my kid a message that this is a bigger deal than it is. And we're bound to do things like that now and then. It's no big deal that we make those mistakes. But it's really good to be mindful of, our, am I giving my child the message I intend? So if your older child is being unkind to your younger child and you treat the younger child like they've been victimized by the older child who you're vilifying. You're giving your kids messages about their roles, about how you see them, about a role that they'll tend to take on. Instead of saying, this is an interaction that happened, we want to have these kind of interactions rather than those kind of interactions. What is often called misbehavior is really just kids trying to figure out how the world works. And so if you approach your children when they're out of bounds or when they're out of turn with something, with, with just the sense of, oh, they need to learn about this. They don't know about this. Or maybe just in that moment they had a lapse, so they need a reminder. So they may need instruction. They may need reminding. They may need reinforcing. They may need their attention shifted from one place to another or to include something. There's always a need behind behavior that's out of bounds. And if we can address that need, 
we can also gently get kids on track. Well, I'm aware of time. So grateful for this conversation. Uh, learned, I learned a ton myself. So thank you so much. It really it's helped. It's great to meet you, Sarah. Yeah.